0: Hey, this is Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air, and I am Jim Grant. And uh, Evan Lorenz, the great deputy editor of Grant's, is to my left. And Henry French, our sound engineer, is directly across the room. And uh, as you can see, ladies and gentlemen, we are broadcasting from the uh, storage room and library and uh, utility rec room of Grant's Interest Rate Observer in New York. And uh, we have a guest today. This is our want, and he is Adam Simmons. Adam Simmons. And we'll hear more from and about Adam in just a moment. Uh, I can say, in, by way of preview, that um, Evan Lorenz, who is no uh, mean judge of uh, knowledgeable financial people, um, counts Adam as about the most knowledgeable and, uh, and I don't know, influent counterparty, uh, not counterparty, uh, interlocutor with whom he's ever spoken. I think that's the you, like the, like the best, right?
1: There's, there's people who speak finance and there's people who speak English, but there's not many people who speak both languages. And I think Adam does a good job of that. Well,
0: we'll, we'll find out for ourselves, won't we, Adam, in just a few minutes. In the meantime, I wanted to tell, um, before we get into uh, merely terrestrial things, this, by the way, this is, uh, we published an issue of grants last night. So this is uh, Wednesday and uh, I'm speaking for myself only, but for me, the day after the publication date is like, December twenty sixth of the North Pole. I am a zombie. I uh, succeed mostly in sitting upright with my eyes open. You think I you ever? Do you ever catch me nodding off on Wednesday after we close?
1: It's hard to say over my seventh cup of coffee. Yeah, well,
0: but you know, um,
1: uh,
0: I and also the Wednesday after the Tuesday is given over to some degree to um, topics not direct directly related to buying low and selling higher, interest rates or other sub. Uh, uh, fixtures of high finance, but rather um, we're outside ourselves for a day, right? So I have in my hand a printed copy of spaceweather.com, which is something you can get as do I. It comes to you intermittently. It's a you know, web-based news source. And if you want to know about geomagnetic storms and solar winds and X-ray solar flares, you got. But it's not... For those things alone, that I get spaceweather.com. Just every once in a while, they tell you something you didn't know and had no reason to expect you'd ever know. For example, Adam and Evan, um, the dung beetle is a singular creature on God's Earth. This is the uh, Scorbeus uh, satyrus dung beetle. And the headline is the dung beetles navigate using the Milky Way. That's what spaceweather.com says. And there's about 800 words about this, and I'm not going to give you each and every word, just a couple of highlights. But I, I, I mean, Charles Darwin might have been right. To me, this is proof positive that there is a God above, and that God has a, a very fey sense of humor. Here's the lead sentence in the dung beetles navigating using the Milky Way story. Quote, when you hear the words dung beetle, you probably think of poop. Well, yeah, that's probably right, right Henry. Yeah. Um, but no, you shouldn't think of something so low as that. Yet yeah, to be sure, that's what dung beetles eat, It's what is on the tin. But the fact is that uh, dung beetles can navigate and do navigate, their eyes raised up to the sky, Evan, as ours ought to be periodically, catching the Milky Way, not exactly examining every star, but seeing, seeing the bright light. And as James Foster himself, the University of Konstanz in Germany says, quote, they are excellent little astronomers. Okay, that's, that's the most amazing, I mean, okay, that's amazing enough, but still more amazing, and this gets us back closer to Earth and closer to Adam uh, Simmons and to the digital infrastructure world, is that there are actually pioneers in dung beetle research. So, this is not some sort of, uh, you know, academic dead end. This is a thriving area of research. I had no idea.
1: If I uh, can interject.
0: No. Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it
1: it does contrast with their central bankers who stare at their navels and try to find an R-star, an yeah, imaginary right, one.
0: Right. Well, they'd, I think they'd be a little bit in better mental health if they paid more attention to spaceweather.com. And by the way, to Grant's Interest Rate Observer and less to whatever they're reading. All right, enough. So Adam Simmons is co-founder and yeah. president of a Digital Infra, spelled D-G-T-L, space I N F. R-A. And I conjecture, Adam Simmons, that it means digital infrastructure because you are about that topic. Yes, uh,
2: absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And thanks, Jim and Evan, for having me on.
0: Yeah. Well, um, before founding uh, uh, Digital Infra, Adam spent uh, nearly a decade in private equity, which we will not hold against. And this is both in New York and London. Adam is a resident both of Florida. That's where his money lives. And he lives sometimes in New York. He takes his money with him from time to time, but he and his money spend time in Florida and New York. And in private equity, he led investment teams focused on deploying capital into the infrastructure and commercial real estate asset classes. So Evan, why, why don't you ask Adam what the heck is going on in the uh, in the world of uh, you know data centers and cell towers and all this stuff that seems to have been built to a fair well will during our boom years of ultra low interest rates?
1: Yeah. so So... It seems like digital data grows exponentially. Every single day, there's more videos to stream, more services from Amazon, which would seem to imply for a lot of demand for data center operators. However, organic growth for companies like Digital Realty and Equinix is kind of mediocre and returns on capital have been falling down. What exactly is going on?
2: Yeah, I think in terms of the growth for the publicly traded data center operators, um they really are getting a significant amount of their growth from the hyperscale cloud providers, so uh, companies like Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, and Google Cloud. and you know the the growth um, from the headline perspective, I think is a lot often talked about in terms of growth and leasing volume. and there's a distinction between volume and pricing and where the um, sort of revenue growth is falling short or, in your case, sort of uh, leveling off and flat is in the pricing. And that's coming up in terms of the bargaining power that these hyperscale, as they're called, um, cloud service providers or um, in, that, in that grouping is also someone like Facebook, um, are really exerting on the digital realties and, and equinixes of the world um, in terms of whether it be a renewal lease coming online and um, a renewing at lower rates or a multi-megawatt um, new lease that is you know, progressively over time having um, uh, being signed at lower rates on a per kilowatt per month basis. So it's tough to grow revenue in the data center sector at, at the moment.
1: And why is that? Why, how are the hyperscalers able to put so much pressure on kind of the likes of digital realty? If they have kind of the real estate that you need to be in, wouldn't they have some pricing power? Or do the hyperscalers themselves have the ability to build their own centers and kind of disintermediate the... Um, you know, their customers or their, uh, their, their uh, landlords.
2: Yeah. So I think if you look at the, uh, particularly for someone on the wholesale side, like digital realty, they're leasing to a single customer often in these buildings and um, they're providing cooling and power infrastructure on five to 15 year terms. And, um, you know their, their their tenant base, although they have hundreds of data centers, is often very concentrated, or at least the meaningful portion of that tenant base is concentrated. So again, it's the Microsofts, the Amazons of the world, um, and and those and it's a unique um, sector in that um, you have such a concentrated customer base um, that the customers actually have their own. You know, power and are, are exerting that, and they know the lease pricing, and they know what it takes to, um, you know, self build and develop their own data centers, and they know the costs that go into it, and the equation that they're coming to is basically if you can build it fast, quick, um, cheap for me, you know, then I'm willing to outsource with you. Otherwise, I can go build it myself because um, I know what the replacement costs of these facilities are. I know that, you know, historically. It was much more expensive and the lease rates were much higher. Let's talk about five years ago. And then you know every single year, it's not um, you know a one year trend, a two-year trend. It's every single year uh, lease pricing is declining. And so you know over time as these five to 15 year leases roll off, some of them have embedded escalators in them too. They're just um, significantly above market at the time of renewal. And what that means is that there's uh, a rental reversion. Um, you know, uh, come renewal time. So having such a concentrated customer base driving so much of the leasing um, is really affecting the uh, the, the hyperscalers, uh, sorry, the digital realties of this world.
0: Um, hey, Adam, for, for the lay portion of our listening public, uh, what do these buildings look like? Do any of them stand a chance of making the cover of Architectural Digest? I mean, are they, are they glorious buildings? Are they, are they just, um, you know, kind of... Um, Toys are Us big, what would they look like and, and what's inside them exactly?
2: Yeah. So I think this is one of the you know, key points is that data centers are not your wow factor pieces of real estate that can really command those high rents. It's not an incredible looking office building. It's not a five-star hotel. It's a often industrial-looking building that's, um, you know, low on windows and uh, is, is simply there to um, have a multi-megawatt power connection put to it and significant cooling infrastructure inside. Uh, fiber optic connectivity connects underground um, from multiple different carriers, but it's not visible. So it's very um, a, a basic-looking building, and they're typically sectioned off into data halls, which allow for... Um, different customers to lease um, different portions within the building. But I would say that the overall building is is intentionally nondescript in order to not draw attention from the public. And at the same time, um, what's unique about it is the human element, I think, is that in, in data centers, the human element is very low. Um, so when they go to planning and zoning, um, data centers often will... Um, provide some context um, to the cities in which um, they're developing these structures and say this will in fact reduce the trip time um, or that or the traffic to the actual site. so it's not impeding the overall city's um, you know ability and traffic flow from a congestion standpoint. but what that really means um, as well is that there are fewer human beings going to these facilities, you know eighty to hundred for, You know, very, very large scale facilities run by Apple or Facebook. We're talking, you know, million square foot buildings. So um, there's that component. There's the component where a lot of the hyperscale facilities are built in the middle of nowhere, essentially, in very rural places. Uh, You know, think Council Bluffs, Iowa, or Ashburn, Virginia, or even further out um, in, in Virginia. So there's no, as I would say, wow factor to the real estate. And it's, it, it becomes over time, as people learn the concepts of building these facilities, um, a very commoditized product in a very you know, box-like structure, which provides power, which provides cooling. But even even that um, cooling aspect is being um, sort of disintermediated because you have a, a type of real estate within the data center sector called a powered shell. And that's the most basic form of data center, um, the lowest lease in terms of uh, a revenue generation, um, and those—that's simply a box that's put up and is connected with power.
1: A box with just a kind of connection to the internet and to a, a power company doesn't sound like it's that complex or something that would face a lot of obsolescence risk. Do ten or fifteen-year-old data centers remain attractive to tenants, or is there an element of, I guess, technological progress and technological obsolescence within the sector?
2: Absolutely, uh, I think you hit on a number of good points there. There's Data centers that, uh, you know, if we're thinking about a new build today, often it's 25, 50 megawatts, you know, we're, we're even pushing towards 100 megawatt, 200 megawatt facilities. So your older facilities from a power standpoint are perhaps not even capable of scaling up to that level. So they're obsolete from a power perspective. Um, they can also be obsolete from a cooling perspective or a general MEP mechanical that can be renovated. Um, you know, but it, it comes at a cost, and and it, it, whether it makes sense to do that um, on a larger scale and get economies of scale by doing that in a larger building is a question to ask yourself. Um, you know, then you know, refurbishing a small older facility, and um, you know how you have um, fiber optic connectivity being another important one. Uh, the landscape in terms of where fiber is important, um, which is driving a lot of data center demand, has changed because. It's becoming a lot more focused on where the cloud service providers are locating. So if a cloud service provider decides to locate in New Albany, Ohio, you know outside outside of um you know a major city, if they decide to locate in Council Bluffs, Iowa, all of a sudden you're building routes from Ashburn, Virginia, to these more suburban locations, and perhaps your more traditional um, inner city Um, urban data centers become less relevant. And so as more data shifts to the cloud, in fact, there's a re-architecting of these different locations of where data centers are needed. And that is also creating obsolescence because you have, so in summary, I guess you have location, power, cooling, and and, and a lot of other different things to think about. When when you use the term obsolescence,
1: I had read an article a couple days ago about an old digital realty data center being transformed into a greenhouse to grow tomatoes. Do these old data centers remain in demand, or are they falling out of use as they um, just get aged out and other and bigger, better boxes are built?
2: Yeah, I, I think you know there there's a potential for reuse of older data centers in in alternative real estate forms, like you mentioned, but. Often the lease rates and the, let's say, per square foot values for the type of data center real estate that they attract are quite high. So the alternative use scenario, whether it be this, um, this growing um, example that you, you put or industrial use or office, that's a much lower value type of real estate um, in terms of lease rates um, to put in that same place as a data center. So it's very difficult um, and and the investor in that property would take a mark down or or not be willing to do something with that. And you see that in in Northern Virginia where the property owners often will just hold land for five, 10-year periods because it's not possible to develop any um, alternative to data centers given the price they pay on a per acre basis for large tracts of land. And so I think in some cases, yes. Data centers, you know, there may be an alternate use, but uh, there's it's not always the case given the um, embedded value that a data center brings to often, you know, rural land or, or suburban land, let's say at least.
1: And in terms of uh, the supply picture, um, we've seen in many, many industries in the last, you know, five or six years where easy money has caused outside investors to look for returns and kind of you know create too much supply in industries. Have we seen I guess a flood of money into the data center space from the likes of private equity, sovereign wealth funds, family offices, and if so, is this impacting the the economics of the sector?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know you've seen and there's really three groups of these type of companies. Um, you have private equity firms that have recently backed a kind of massive take private of data centers. So first off, you had Blackstone who acquired QTS in a $10 billion deal. Uh, Then you had KKR and uh, Global Infrastructure Partners acquire Cyrus One in a $15 billion deal. And then most recently, Switch um, was taken private in an $11 billion deal. And and, and so why is this important? It's because these, you know, Blackstone, KKR, they're some of the most deep-pocketed private equity firms in the world. Um, you know, with business plans after they take private these data centers at, um, you know, arguably very high multiples, we're talking 25 times and above, uh, uh, touching 30 times. But the business plans are EBITDA, EBITDA, yes. Um, And the business plans that they're, you know, predicated on generating their mid-teens IRRs are predicated on constructing billions of dollars worth of data center capacity, new data center capacity all over the world, um, United States, Europe, um, and then they're less active in Asia Pacific, but they're you know making inroads there. Um, and so all of this competition from, from the private equity firms creates pricing pressure. Um, you have um, your, your second sort of type of vehicle So those those were the former public data center operators being taken private um, by by your largest private equity firms. And you have someone like American Tower, who at the end of twenty twenty one stepped in and purchased a company called CoreSite for ten billion dollars, and took that company and uh, you know amalgamated it into its private vehicle, and is ramping up um, you know production of the the development capex as well to build more capacity. American Tower has a a unique angle on this because their u s. or domestic growth is quite um, tepid, let's say, on the on the tower side. And so they're looking for um, a way in which to expand their growth, um coresite being an entirely u s based data center operator, you're looking for a way to expand their kind of u s. growth as a whole. And so, American Tower, which um, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but is a company with a market cap of north of $100 billion, um, can afford to pay $10 billion and put a tremendous amount of CapEx into growing core site.
0: Let me ask you this about uh, the private equity uh, operators coming in and buying these data centers, very fancy multiples. A lot of debt, I suppose, right? They're borrowing a lot of money to do this. And um, I wonder what interest rates they were assuming... And their business plans, and I wonder if there is a margin of safety for uh, LIBOR or the new benchmark money market rate SOFR uh, to go up and up and up, and for the uh, uh, the funding costs to impinge more and more and more on their on their cash flow. Uh, do you see any difficulties uh, arising from this?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the in the, in the sector, I think. You mentioned a great point about the direct impact from interest rate rises, and then there's also the implicit: should the EBITDA multiples or exit cap rates on the back end, um, you know, be affected by that as well? But um, I think it's too early to say for those groupings of companies whether the direct interest rate impact has affected their companies. Um, but I would say you do see it in the public markets. You know, someone like Sixtera um which is very highly levered. Um it's a data center operator focused more on retail co-location. So dealing with um, you know smaller customers, enterprises on one to three year contracts. And they have um, had their stock price uh, nearly halved since their IPO, which occurred I believe in just uh, tw- early twenty twenty one. and very recently um, you know their stock price prices halved. Um, and you know there is yeah very much some concern um, of of a company like this, or we're seeing it um, as well with some of the smaller private operators that um, focus on particularly retail colocation. And if it's helpful, I can explain the difference between retail and wholesale. But um, you know, you're dealing with short duration contracts that reprice you know much more frequently than the leases that um, you know Amazon and Microsoft signs. And with this uh, you know sudden shock in interest rates. Um, it it is putting pressure on highly leveraged data center operators, whether they be someone public or there's a number of private, you know, names that um, perhaps weren't taken private just recently, but, you know, historically have been private. So someone like Flexential, um, you know, that GI Partners owns, they uh, recently did a securitization and, um, you know, elaborated on the portfolio metrics of their retail co-location uh, sort of portfolio, and it, it was less than fifty percent occupied on a per square foot basis, um, other facilities and that's across the board. So I think there is, as you said,
1: uh, less than fifty percent is bad, right?
2: Yeah, I, I mean i'm sure I'm sure people have arguments.
0: Well, data centers might not need a whole lot of people, but uh, ladies and gentlemen, I suspect that you do. and if you do, uh, look to indeed it is the hiring platform where you can attract interview and hire all in one place. So do not spend hours on multiple job sites uh, looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. So find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant, match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Yep. So Indeed's US data show that uh, over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. You, ladies and gentlemen, should join three million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. So Indeed knows that when you're doing everything for your company, you can't afford to overspend on hiring. Visit Indeed.com/grant to start hiring now. This go to Indeed.com/grant indeed.com slash grant. Terms and conditions apply, as they always do. So cost for application pricing, not applicable for everyone. Need to hire?
1: You need Indeed. You're continuing, Adam, and I think you're also talking about other forms of competition from uh, outside capital.
2: Yeah. And, and I think the final, the third grouping of outside capital is really those private data center operators, which I touched on. And every major private equity firm, you know, That's below the level of Blackstone and KKR, also has their multi billion dollar uh, data center platform. So, if you think of Brookfield Infrastructure, they have a company called Evoke, where they're transitioning from retail co location to focusing on hyperscale investing. Digital Bridge has a number of data center operators, one one of them called Vantage Data Centers. EQT has a company called Edge Connects. Um, Macquarie has a company called Aligned, and then as well a company called Prime Data Center. The list uh, is tremendous in terms of the support from private equity firms for both the take privates at very high valuation multiples and also the funding of private data center operators to largely build new data center capacity. And I think, um, and I I don't know if you want to go here, but the one, you know, the number one market in which people are building is Northern Virginia. And that is when you think about. Whether the data center market is going to work in the future, you have to, you know, have a scrutiny on Northern Virginia in terms of whether that particular market, you know, whether it be Ashburn or Sterling, Virginia, you know, is going to be successful because it is an immensely competitive environment with 20 hyperscale data center operators competing on RFPs and signing, you know, those very large uh, megawatt, 50 plus megawatt leasing deals. And, and, and I can get into that more, but um, I'll, I'll stop there.
1: That's very helpful. But taking kind of a big picture view before getting into the nitty gritty. So it sounds like rents come down every year. And after you kind of go through these long 10 or 15 year leases, which have, as you mentioned, uh, natural escalators in them, that rents reset down because, you know, rents had fallen over that period of time. At the same time, there's a lot of competition coming to the sector from pretty well financed uh, people. And maybe interest rates change that over time. But for right now, it means there's a lot of new capacity coming along. What does this mean, I guess, to existing data centers, owners, economics. Uh, I'm looking at kind of like digital realty, Equinix, and kind of the other large players in the sector.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, lease rates uh, coming down are one component of that. And and the economic equation is not, So that's from the revenue side, and the economic equation from the cost side is also very challenging. You have construction costs rising. And a lot of the operators have, you know, told you looking backwards that that construction costs you know, they have it in, in line, but it's, it's, it's coming. And I think any, any variance, you know, greater than 4% is a material deviation in construction costs, and, and those are going to be forthcoming, you know, in the, in the following quarters. You have tight labor markets for construction, and both of those will hurt development yields going forward. Um, in Europe, you have, um, you know, particular concern from energy prices for operational data centers. And that's impacting returns there, making it very painful for existing operators like Equinix and Digital Realty um, in, in Europe. And, and, and from what I read in the UK, I think there's more pain to come in, in terms of um, energy prices. And then you have, um, you know, the other components to building a data center, which are also you know challenging. Land parcels are at record uh, per acre prices in northern Virginia. We're talking, you know, two million, three million per acre. Um and so, what do some of these challenges um, result in? I think we saw we saw a company that was um, about six months ago, maybe maybe nine months ago, announced that it was filing for bankruptcy. A company called SunGuard Availability Services, which is a more retail co-location provider. Um, SunGuard was challenged for a number of different reasons, um, you know, but one of them that led their European business um, to ultimately file was a power price spike, which sent um, you know, the, the power in, in, in Europe to about 7,000 kilowatts per hour, um, whereas in, in that circumstance, they weren't bit, uh, able to pass this through to their underlying customers. And so there's, a, I think on a holistic basis, there's a few broken business models out there, particularly on the retail co-location side. And the impacts of interest rates, which were mentioned, the impacts of inflation on the cost side, and then the impacts of pricing um, are all factoring into, I think, a bit of forthcoming um, pain for some of the um, some of the operators.
1: What about the impacts of uh, COVID or the delayed impacts of COVID? We saw in kind of the last two years, a huge boom in kind of online services and shopping online We saw Amazon do a land grab for warehouses, which it's now trying to walk back from. Um, And this year, uh, we're seeing tech companies starting to lay off employees. Netflix, which is one of the bigger drivers of online traffic, has uh, said that it wants to cut down on its Amazon Web Services spending, according to The Wall Street Journal. And even Google, which pretty much mints money, has uh, apparently told its employees to cut down business travel to just the bare essential critical trips. And this is according to the information. Was there a pull forward in demand for data centers just given kind of the boom of everybody being online in 2020 and 2021? And if so, is there going to be a hangover from that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a there's a boom in terms of everyone being online and there's a boom in terms of, you know, loose um, funding because and I think it's twofold. So you mentioned someone like Netflix, I think, you know, comparables to that uh, Lyft or Uber pulling back on spending. I think in a prior conversation you and I had, we spoke about Coinbase pulling back on spending. Um, some of these companies that are by now pay later um, that are struggling like in a firm know their their new enterprise data center tenants so yes i think the whole technology ecosystem pulling back from spending on the data centers will have an impact um, it was propped up by you know more use of their services during covid let's say um but also a component of that i think comes t- towards um, the startup side of it as well where you know funding is uh loose let's say and and, and companies have you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to spend, and so their developers and engineers are just running as fast as possible, trying to, um, you know, develop the next product, and and you really using the cloud computing services as an open bar. And so there's not as much oversight from these um, unprofitable startups at that time in terms of their actual cloud spending. And so as as that gets reined in. A, a bit, or as the next funding round, you know, is challenged. Let's say, and, and and there is no more funding. There, there will be less spending on the cloud, and that's kind of a you know virtuous circle um, in, in, there. And and as the if the cloud service providers are not growing as fast, then they're ultimately you know they're not leasing data center capacity as fast, or they're not, or they're choosing to build instead of lease, which has a longer lag time and ultimately you know better economics for them. Um, so they're they're just delaying certain decisions. So I think it's twofold um, from the the technology sector, and you know that that impacts um, you know data center spending across the board, and particularly in markets like um, Silicon Valley, which is the second largest data center market in the U.S.
1: One more question for you. So I had always thought of crypto as decentralized because that's one of the key selling points for coins like uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum. But I was browsing through Amazon Web Service white papers, and I noticed that a disproportionate volume of all Ethereum traffic, apparently traffics on Amazon Web Services. And I also noticed this week that um, Ethereum is trying to move from a very computationally intensive proof of work to a very non-computationally um, intensive proof of stake. Might this have an impact on the sector as well?
2: Interesting point. I'm not uh, an expert by any means on the crypto space, but I, I, I can tell you that you'd be surprised at you know how many different companies you know, rely on Amazon Web Services or Google, you know, for running and, and, and scaling their services, but, you know, they just don't, uh, you know, disclose it readily. And I think, you know, that's a great example. And another one would be someone like Apple, who runs, uh, you know, their iCloud storage and has committed to grow on AWS. And, and, and so there's a lot of different, you know, levers if, if the crypto market suffers, uh, then perhaps uh, AWS suffers. But, I uh, I will uh, you know steer clear of my expertise in crypto.
1: Well, sticking with your expertise for a second, you did mention that Amazon Web Services has had a lot of unprofitable tech companies. Um, a large part of why Amazon commands the value it does is because Amazon Web Services is so profitable and has grown so fast, and it's the largest um, cloud provider in the world. Um, just given what you're seeing from kind of the capital that's been put in place to kind of service these customers and kind of. How demand might have been propped up artificially by cheap rates, uh, easy money and venture capital what what is your kind of outlook for the big cap cloud providers
2: yeah i think I think there's definitely potential for their growth rates to slow you know they're you know they've historically grown at you know thirties and forty percent year over year growth rates and they're very large businesses, and so you deal with um, you know the law of large numbers in terms of having difficulty to keep compounding growth at such a high rate and then you know as you mentioned the um, the challenges faced by perhaps some of more of the startup community or smaller enterprises um, cutting back on spending uh, you know you could very well see those companies uh, growing at closer to 20 percent um, you know in, in in the in the 20 ranges uh, going forward but I don't think um, there's there really is a secular uh, tailwind behind the cloud service provider so I don't really think they're you know, we're going to see an inflection um, negative, let's say, um, or, or significantly, you know, below 15 percent or something like this, at least in the near term. But uh, we'll see it. It's you know, this is one of the first downturns um, that could be forthcoming that we would have a, a good lens into how a recession affects the cloud service providers, because they have really grown up over the past 10 years and um, have kind of uh, grown through. All impediments. So it's it, it will be interesting to see.
1: If uh, Amazon Web Services growth fell to fifteen percent from thirty plus, it would feel like a depression for a lot of Amazon investors.
2: Absolutely, I think um, you know if digital realty or Equinix's multiples went to fifteen as well, then it would feel like a depression for a lot of investors. Perhaps not Jim Chanos, but uh, it is uh, sometimes these shocks do happen. So we have to be ready for them.
0: Yeah. Well, let's do that. And uh, Adam Simmons, thank you for being with us today. Evan, as always, a pleasure. I'll see you around the campus. Uh, Henry, much obliged to you. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Jim Grant on behalf of Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air.